Hello everyone and welcome to the Hidden Lives of Writers. My name is Fiona Snickers and I'm joined by Gail Schimmel. Hi Gail, how's it going? Very well, Fiona, and I say that in a slightly scared voice because I know you're going to ask me how my writing week is, so I'm going to jump in and ask you first, how's your writing week been? It was the writing week that wasn't, unfortunately, because we are getting ready to launch our first episode of this podcast, and the Admin Connected has just been insane. The only thing I've been writing has been emails and little show notes and bits for social media. And the only reading I've been doing is the replies that have been coming in. My writing week has been completely derailed. And at some point, maybe it was around Wednesday, I just gave up and decided to let this be a non-writing week. And I think sometimes you just have to do that. Sometimes it's just an admin week. I so, so agree. And what a relief because I've also had a very slow week. My day job has been extremely busy. My children have been busy. I haven't been getting to it. And I haven't wanted to get to it. Mm -hmm. And then on Wednesday late afternoon, I think driving to fetch a child, um, and to put it in context for listeners, this is today I'm speaking on a Friday, Mm -hmm. um, I listened to a podcast. Mm -hmm. And the podcast gave me the energy to go back to my writing. And it made me want to, and it fired me up, and it got me excited. And Fiona, as we as we about to record our last episode of the podcast, my greatest hope mm-hmm. is that one of these episodes has done this for somebody else, for one of our listeners, that it has given them the energy either to go back to writing or to read something new and has just given them that infusion of energy into their lives. It's, it's really, I hope that we've done that for someone. I hope so too. And speaking of being fed with creative energy, Mm. what have you been reading, watching or listening to this week? So I have been in a little pocket of local reading and two extreme genres and interesting because a lot of parallels. So I've read Joe Watson's What Happened on Vacation, which is a rom-com. Is she South African? She is South African and nobody knows about her and she is massive internationally. She has a huge publishing deal. She's written many rom-coms. I'm not even clear how I became aware of her, but certainly my first awareness did not involve, oh, she's a South African writer doing well. Yes, I've heard of her as a romantic comedy writer. I thought she was an international writer. And in fact, this book that I've just read, which is totally on-the-dot rom-com genre. If you love rom-coms, you'll love it. If mm-hmm. you don't like rom-coms, you won't. Right. It's a proper rom-com, and it's set in South Africa. Wow. And it was just such a satisfying read. So, so I loved that. And then another one who – completely different genre, fantasy, also with a massive international deal – also possibly maybe a little bit more than Joe known here. Um, but it is Shamiz Patel and now I've got to pause. Papa <laughs> Papa Thanasu. And my mm-hmm. Greek pronunciation should be better than that. Papa Thanasu, who has written two so far in a trilogy, the Serene trilogy, and the one I'm reading is the second one, The Eternal Shadow. Mm-hmm. And also just absolutely on point for her genre really clever really engaging and this one because it's set in a fantasy world the South African part is very very subtle in the first book for me the biggest South African reference was there was a kudu suddenly (laughs) in the middle of a fantasy forest and I just I love her and I think it's so exciting, um, a, a woman of color writing this exciting international fantasy stuff from South Africa. And I really, I, it's made me think a lot about us as our local writing community and mm-hmm. who we welcome in and who we don't welcome in and how much jealousy is maybe a part of that welcoming and how we've got to we've got to check ourselves there. Mm. We've got to these people who have enormous international success, they have so much to teach us. We've got to be listening to them. Yeah, I would love to have both of these writers on the podcast. Absolutely. We we need to wait until they're in Joburg again. What have you been reading, Fiona? I have been reading a nonfiction book, which is a bit off-brand for me, but I've been dipping into it in between my fiction reads, and it is called Outlive by Dr. Peter Atier. 
And I first came across him on Instagram. I follow quite a few sort of health and wellness experts on Instagram. And he interested me because he is a scientist and a medical doctor. And all of his advice is based in very good science, double-blinded, peer-reviewed studies. And this book, Outlive, is it forces you to think about what do you want to be doing in your marginal decade, also known as your liminal decade. And this means? <laughs> and what it means is your last decade of life. What do you want that to look like? Do you want to be in a retirement home, maybe in a wheelchair, maybe uh, with tubes coming out of various bits of your body, needing assistance in yes, all completely. The, that's what I want. Needing assistance with all the activities of daily living, or do you want to be independent? And not just independent, do you want to be surfing? Do you want to be playing tennis? Do you want to be traveling? Do you still want to be writing? And if those are, most people would say, yes, I want mm, all those mm, things. Mm. And also I want my last decade to be as late as possible, maybe mm. 90 to 100 or, you know, who Surfing. knows what. <laughs> Surfing at the age of 96. And he breaks down for you, depending on what you want to be doing in your last decade, these are the things you should be doing now. And that to me is so interesting. And I think we all know as women in midlife, that what we should really be doing is pushing heavy weights, unfortunately. I believe so. Yeah, that's the advice we always get given. We should be getting stronger, more muscular. Um, we should be preparing ourselves like athletes now for the Olympics of being in our 80s or 90s. And he, he really breaks it down. It's, it's a good narrative. That's why it appeals to me. It's very aspirational. And he breaks it down into very actionable steps that you can, you can do. You can see yourself doing this. I think this is a must read for me because I am obsessed at the moment with the way the choices you make uh, for me as I, as I'm about to turn 50 are going to dictate the type of old age you have. And I am obsessed with the idea of having a wonderful old age. Yes. So I think this goes right to the top of my to be read. Well, somebody that I hope is still writing books in his 90s is our guest today, Johnny Steinberg. You know him from his books, Midlands, The Number, Notes from a Fractured Country, Thin Blue, Seasway's Test, Little Liberia, A Man of Good Hope, one Day in Bethlehem, and now most recently, Winnie and Nelson, Portrait of a Marriage. Hi, Johnny, and welcome. Hi, Fiona and Gail. Good to be here. Johnny, tell us, how has your writing week been? Is that something that is even existing for you in this hectic publicity time that you're in? No, I mean, I, I can't, can't write in the middle of a publicity tour. My, my writing regime is very fragile. It requires a particular setup. <laughs> and anything that breaks it destroys it. It means doing a series of interviews and live events, in this case, over a period of about 10 days. So, you know, yesterday, I don't quite remember, was three or four interviews and a live event. It's been a particularly intensive one. I think that overall I'm going to do about nine live events over a period of 11 days. So it's, it's quite it continuous work. Is it fun or is it exhausting? It's both. You know, when you, you know, as, as YouTube know, when you spend a long time by yourself writing a book, getting it out in the world is special and talking to people about it. And most importantly, getting surprising perspectives on it when people begin to read it and, and throw their thoughts back at you. It's what it's all about. It's wonderful. So, so it's a good thing. I, I guess the downside is it's quite embarrassing repeating oneself all the time. I mean, if you're doing a lot of media yeah. and a lot of events, there's certain things that you want to get across and that you have to say every time. And I don't have the imagination to say it in a new way every time. And there's a danger in boring yourself and, and exuding that boredom to your audience. So what's really important is your interlocutor, how alive they are, how creative they are, how much they surprise you. And I mean, for instance, last night, um, I, I did a, an interview on Kai FM and the interviewer just to a really extraordinary magical extent managed to pick up the spirit of the book in quite an ineffable way not just by what she asked but just by what she brought into the room it was really hard to pin down but she had read the book she was excited by the book and she just got it in quite a profound way and it was there in her tone in her enthusiasm in the ways that she was moved 
uh, sort of beyond her specific questions. She was just, um, and that's wonderful. That just wakes you up. You know, it's the end of a long day that happened at nine at night after a day of long events. And, and suddenly, I, you know, it felt like I'd slept for 10 hours and the day was beginning anew. No pressure on us, Fiona. No <laughs> pressure at all. Can I ask one more process question before I let you get to the, to the book stuff, Fiona? Go for it, Gail. You said your writing process is fragile. Can you give us an insight into what your writing process looks like? What is a typical writing day for you? So for a start, I can't be doing anything else that's major. I can be doing small things, but I can't juggle writing. I can juggle writing with other things. I can't juggle writing well with other things. Mm-hmm. And so, I generally wake up at about six in the morning and I read the newspapers for a couple of hours and have breakfast. And then by 8.30, I'm at my desk and I write. It depends, but it's usually for between three and four hours, minimum three, maximum four. And generally the first 90 minutes or so, there's barely a word on the page. It's just getting back into things. Mm-hmm. And, and what does that look is like? Is that re- rereading what you wrote the day before or is it just literally blood from a stone staring at the screen? No, it's always rereading and reading bits of other things sometimes. It depends what's going on in, in, at that moment in the book. And, and really most of the words come onto the page in the last hour of those three or four hours. And how many words on a page is a good writing day for you? Well, weirdly, it's slowed down dramatically. So, you know, I started writing my first book, how long ago? 25 years ago. And I could easily do a thousand words a morning then without any trouble, sometimes 1500. Now I seldom get above five or six hundred. And I don't know why I've slowed down. It, it may be that I'm older now. It may be that I choose words more carefully. It may be I'm a better writer. I, I honestly don't know. At first it was upsetting that I slowed down so much, but now that's just how it is and, and I've accepted it. That's fascinating. I feel like I've speeded up. Um, and I'm, I'm maybe, I'm worried maybe it's because I'm becoming a worse writer. Because <laughs> I think it might be about getting a good 500 down rather than a bad a thousand well not you, bad yeah <laughs> i mean you know i was so last um northern autumn i was teaching I, I was absolutely determined to keep writing while i was teaching and i did i managed to write every day and when the teaching semester was over and i looked at what i'd written it was awful mm-hmm. um so yeah good writing goes slowly um and and must be exclusive for me and that's uh I mean, that's quite a pessimistic thought. How many, how many writers can make it exclusive? It's very unusual to have that opportunity. And do you mix up research and writing or have you completely finished your research before you put a single word on the page? Not at all. I, I begin writing as soon as I feel that I can. And, and that's often maybe six months into a project where I've only done less than half the research. And, and there are two reasons for that, I think. One is that for me, writing is very formative. I don't quite know what I'm going to say until I see it written down. And so what I've written determines what comes next. I mean, there's always such a gap between what I imagine is going to be on the page in quite a big way, and even in terms of the structure of a book and what actually comes out. So, yeah, so I can't start writing at the end. I need to start writing to see what I'm going to write. So you, you're not a writer who has a structure when you sit down to write you, because normally with nonfiction writers, they're very structured, but it sounds like you're a bit of a pantser. You write a bit by the seat of your pants. How no, about- I, I do have a structure, but I just, I know that it will probably change. So, so I can't begin writing unless I have a sense of what the whole book's going to look like, but I do know that, that that's provisional. Okay. You mentioned your first book, Midlands, which is, a story of that contested space between white farm owners and black laborers. And that has, if anything, become even more of a flashpoint in history today than it was when you wrote the book. And it's become a kind of cause celeb overseas. The, the MAGA movement has kind of embraced it and gone on to the side of the white farm owners. And it's, if anything, become even more of a conflagration would you approach that topic differently today or is it is it something that belongs in the past for you I, you know i think every book's written in its time and 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 as you said in relation to that issue times have changed so so yes the whole frame would be different now it would be it would be less a question you know that that book was written in the very early years of democracy and and the question was um how many unsettled questions or unanswered questions are there and 
and how much are they being answered on the ground in blood? You know, that, that, that was the primary question. That, that can't be the question now because we're a quarter of a century later. I, you know, I haven't thought what, what a book on the same subject would look like now. I mean, as you're alluding to, I'd, I'd hazard a guess it would be a much more global book. And the world just is profoundly more connected now than it was in the late 1990s. And, and that's all South Africans, not just right wing white nationalists, but, um, but most black South Africans are connected to the world through their cell phones in a way that was unimaginable when I wrote that book and, and has profoundly changed everything about everybody. Right. It touches on that you take on really big, really global, really important issues. Um, how, how do you, when you're in that planning process, how do you narrow down onto which story, which issue um, is, is it something catches your imagination or is it you feel that there's a duty to tell particular stories? It's different with each book. So, so in Midlands, my first book, I was a working journalist at, at Business Day in Johannesburg. Uh, one of the beats I was covering was the police. And within that beat, I kept coming across what was called farm murders. And I just, you, you just get a sense that you're scratching the surface as a daily journalist and that there's a massive world beneath each story, but a massive world beneath mm. each story. It was kind of, it was so obvious that, that getting 18 months or two years to write the story instead of 24 hours would, would tell a story about South Africa, an important one. It, it just seemed blindingly clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I raised money to get 18 months to do this and left my job oh. and did it. Which makes me realize we've left out a very important starter question. What is your superhero origin story? What is, how did you come to be a writer? What did you study? What did you do? How did you end up where you are now, sitting in our studio? Well, well, being a nonfiction writer, I don't trust anybody's story about their own past, <laughs> <laughs> including, including my own. <laughs> Fiona, so I, was, Fiona witnessed some of it, so she can yeah. tell, she can be a fact checker. Well, I should, I should just tell listeners that, that Fiona and I were at high school together. We were. And so we've known each other since we were about 13. Do you want to art which high school it is, or do you want to keep that as closely guarded? It was Hyde Park High School. Yeah, when Uh, we met, uh, Johnny was shorter than I am, and that is no longer the case. (laughs) Things change. It was a while ago. (laughs) All sorts of things change. Um, And and then we connected again. I I did a a doctorate in political theory at Oxford, um, and Fiona by then was newly married, and her um, husband, Frank Snickers, was also studying at Oxford, so we reconnected then. And... At that time, I, I kind of had this choice. Do I uh, stay in the UK and, and look for a job in, in academia or come home? And home was just so exciting. My, my time at studying at Oxford was 95 to 98. So, you know, literally a new world was being born here in South Africa. And I, I, it was so underexplored. There was so much to say. And, and I wanted to say it for a general audience, um, not for an academic audience. So, I came home, got a job in a newsroom because I thought that was the best way to see the country and stayed there for as short a time as I could. It ended up being 14, 15 months and then started writing full time. And, and I guess, um, at the time, the, the, the nonfiction writer I was most taken by was the, the New Yorker journalist, Janet Malcolm. Um, and, and reading her work gave me the, the confidence and the imagination to, to try and to do what I did. I mean, she was really formative. And, and there were two things that she did that, that really blew me away. And, and the one is that she could, she wrote very intimate, intense stories about individuals, but they were always about the world. They were always about very broad questions. And, and that knack of telling a small story to, to resonate mm-hmm. all over, I, I really enjoyed. But I think the more important thing about her work is that she was relentlessly skeptical about what she could know about what she was writing about. Um, and so she placed herself at the center of the narrative. Um, and was con, she had just incredibly sharp mind, just questioning everything she'd written. And, and you'd think that would make for bad writing. It's too self-reflective. Story can't get going, but it becomes absolutely gripping. You, there's a double thing going on. There's the story, there's the subject, mm-hmm. and then there's the writer's relation to the subject and whether she knows what the hell she's talking about. And, and that was, I think that was really important for a white South African writer mm. at the time, because I'm venturing into, you know, so South Africa is, it's a cliche to say it, but it's an astonishingly divided country that you brush shoulders with people in the streets and you know absolutely nothing about them. You can't read them. They, 
there's a well of experience they come from that's inaccessible to you. Mm. So how do you go into another world which is in your country and know what you're doing? And and that kind of continual self-questioning that that Malcolm had um was was the most important tool that gave me the, the confidence to go and do that and and a way to write about it. Um I would have guessed that Charles Fanoncelin was a big influence on you. Would that be accurate to say? Well, he, I mean his his work is immensely important and it's given us vistas of knowledge we didn't have before but he wasn't influenced for the writing right um he was somebody you know he was a delight to read and very very important to read um for the content and for the knowledge mm-hmm. um and just marveling at his capacity to open up a world you know through through the rich rich texture of daily life and how he used how he mobilized all sorts of sources to do that i mean it's reading his work is is wonderful um but but the actual writing, uh, you know, I, I, I took models from elsewhere. You've talked about the going into other people's worlds um, and in South Africa in a divided country, and you've talked about doing it as a white man. Can can you give us more insight into that? Because that's become more and more controversial. Probably when you started writing, I would imagine it wasn't seen as that controversial. And now there's a big question, do we have the right to tell other people's stories? Do white people have have the right to to tell the stories of black people or must we allow people their own voice? How are you navigating that? So I think there are two different questions there. And, and the one that preoccupied me when I started writing wasn't when I, whether I was appropriating somebody else's story, but whether I could know somebody else's story. Whereas the question now is, is, is that formal one? It's one of appropriation. It's whether a, another person's story belongs to them and them exclusively, and it's not your right to tell. Um, I think that's a very dangerous idea. I, I think that's, um, I mean, one of the implications is that we really can no longer imagine one another. Um, and and if that's the case, it's it's very dark. It's very pessimistic. Mm. It means we we live in parallel tunnels and never see one another. And you can't live together that way. You can't build a society that way. Um, but what is very important is is that when you venture into somebody else's world and particularly somebody else's intimate stories, you do so a with deep respect for them um, and for vigilance for their dignity. Um, and with humility to know that, that, um, to never forget who you are. I mean, I think that all of that is possible. Gail has mentioned your superhero origin story. And, uh, I would say that your superpower, as I remember you, is the ability to talk to anyone. Is this 13 year old Johnny we're talking about this, now? This is high school Johnny. Yeah. I remember that you had an almost preternatural ability to move between different high school cliques, whether it was the sporty kids or the nerdy kids or the debating kids or the popular kids or indeed the teachers. Um, I remember going on school tours and looking around and you would have struck up a conversation with some random adult who just happened to be there and would be deep in conversation with that person. So that ability to speak to anyone and to earn their trust, I believe, is one of your superpowers and has really fed into your books would you say that's that's accurate or is that not something you can comment on well well i I, and i do remember being very drawn to adults when i was 13 or 14 partly because i feared people my own age (laughs) (laughs) um but i i think that's um i think people who tell you their stories do so because they want to and need to i I think it's more about them than about you Mm -hmm. um i don't i don't think i have the power to get a story out of somebody who doesn't need to tell it and, and in that sense, subjects choose themselves. I do think that I've li- written predominantly about men, and that's no coincidence. Mm-hmm. I think that men are more comfortable speaking to a strange man than women are. Um, and that about me does determine who I'm going to write about and, and is, is undoubtedly an enormous limitation. So, you know, if I chose to write a book about HIV, and it ended up being a very, very intense, intimate story about a, a young man who was HIV negative. Um, you know, not about a young woman who was HIV positive. Um, so, so yeah, who, who I am, I see who I am more as a, as a limitation than, than an opening. You, you can never write the whole world. You have to write something. Um, and what that something is, is often shaped 
by who you are despite your intentions. You've just said something that's so interesting to me and has derailed me off the question I was planning. Um, you said you have to write something. Is it a compulsion for you? Do you have to write? Um, I wouldn't want to romanticize it. It's what I've learned to do and I can do it, so I keep doing it. <laughs> do you think you would, if you didn't have an audience and you made no money, do you think that need to write would still be there? No, because writing is about having an audience it's it's fundamental to it but but when i say writing about something i i think that writer's block the this anxiety that that stops you from writing comes from a a kind of illusion or or a false um, notion that one can write a whole world um and, and you can't writing is limited and and once you realize that there are boundaries and that they're pretty narrow boundaries then you can write it, it's really a it's kind of a moment of resignation being able to put pen to paper. You, you're always aware of how much you're not writing, and, it, and it's always vast. You mentioned the book on HIV, and Gail and I have both had the experience of having to change a book's title for an overseas audience or a different audience, and also, in fact, changing the book um, because – an agent or a publisher or whatever tells you that what's okay for a South African audience is not okay, say, for an American audience. Now, The Three-Letter Plague in America was published as Sizwe's Test. What was the reason for that name change, and did the book itself change in any way? Hmm. So I, I'm terrible at coming up with titles, but I did come up with Three-Letter Plague, and I thought it was a good, it's a lovely a good title. title. <laughs> <laughs> and the the... South African and and UK publishers went for that. Mm-hmm. Um, the marketing division of Simon & Schuster in New York didn't like that. They thought that um, nobody would know what the book referred to um, and and went for Caesar's Resist. I wasn't upset about that. I thought that was fine. I didn't fight that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in terms of what's in the book, so the way all of my books have worked is that they'd be published in several jurisdictions. Um, mm-hmm. Simultaneously? The, or? Not necessarily, but but the... The, the publishers among themselves would choose a lead editor and, and that person would edit the book and it would come out exactly the same everywhere. So in that case, the lead editor was the, the Simon and Schuster editor in New York. And, and I, once we're on the subject, I, I think that, that New York editing is vastly superior to anywhere else. Um, the whole structure of the industry there frees up editors with, it gives them the time to edit. And I, and it's very hard to do that anywhere else. Um, what is that difference? Well, the difference is that they, they, they're responsible for far fewer books every year because it's, it's understood that their job is to read a book four or five times and to roll up their sleeves and get very involved. And so when my agents and I are putting a book together, the question always comes, who are we going to ask to be the lead editor? It, it's always obvious it's the editor who's got the time to really edit and, and that's just the way the industry is structured in different countries. You know, in, in the UK, I wouldn't want to put a number to it, but I think that my editor in the UK is, is maybe publishing four or five times as many books a year as, as my editor in New York. So, and that's important. It's important to have a, a real skilled professional mm. reading very, very closely and, and with the time to do that. Um, in terms of research, the work that you did for The Number and for Thin Blue, um, I'm aware that you did ride alongs with the police and you conducted interviews in prisons and so on. Uh, were you ever in situations where you were physically threatened yourself, where you felt unsafe? Did you put yourself in those situations? Well, I, I tried not to, but there was one, in retrospect, pretty amusing situation where I'm writing, uh, researching the number, a, a life story of a prison gangster. There was a person I really wanted to speak to. He... He's a very interesting man. His name, he's, he's dead now. His name was Johnny Issel, and he was really responsible for founding the UDF in the Western Cape. He was quite a remarkable man. Um, but for a variety of reasons, had fallen out of favor and out of politics and was running a pie shop in the middle of Mitchell's, Mitchell's Plain. Um, and he really had a conception of himself as a grassroots figure who knew everybody and, and uh, was safe with everybody. And I said, well, where exactly is your pie shop? And he said, don't worry, go to this shopping center in Mitchell's Plain. It'll be young men hanging around and just ask them where Johnny Issel is. 
So I went there and there were young men hanging around and I asked them where Johnny Isle was and they pulled a gun on me and got put me in the car and got and drove me off. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so Johnny Isle was mortified after that. And, well, what did they storm, do with you? stormed you around can... Mitchell's plane looking for these people. What, what happened? Where did they take you? So they tried to sell the car and when they couldn't, they just gave up and they left me in the car. <laughs> so slightly incompetent hijackers. No, just uh, opportunistic. And, and actually, uh, they, they kind of exuded a spirit which wasn't all that threatening bizarrely given the circumstances they they, yeah it it, it wasn't a scarring experience now if i let fiona she will stay in your backlist for the entire time we have because there's nothing fiona likes more than a backlist i'm going to bring you to the present you've done something incredibly brave because you have written the story of Nelson Mandela and Winnie Mandela, which is a story we all feel like we know and a story we all feel like we own. We, we all have our own, I feel like it's a story I know and I know what I think about it. And you've done this really brave thing. Did it feel brave when you started? T- tell us about how you decided to write this book. So I, when I say this, I, I honestly mean no disrespect to anybody who's written about them before, but, but I, you know, I, I reread the major biographies and and felt that when they were written, it wasn't possible to write about these people properly mm. while they were still alive. It, it just wasn't possible. Mm. Um, and, you know, it dawned on me we're in a new era and it, it was time, it was possible for the first time to write about them anew. And I was really confident about that. So in that sense, it, it wasn't brave because I knew, I knew it was a new era of writing mm. about them. And, and I wanted to, you know, get there before others did. Was it sparked by coming across the Kutsia collection? No, I only came across, so, so to, to just explain to, to listeners, um, about halfway through researching, um, I discovered that there was a collection of the transcripts of all of the conversations that Nelson Mandela had had with all of his visitors from sure. 1980 to 1990, including Winnie, including his children. Um, and yeah, I, I went and obviously got my hands on those transcripts and read them. And are you the first writer who had done that in, for a biography? No, so so it's quite an interesting story. What, so so Kutsia, uh became the Minister of Prisons and Justice in 1980, and from the beginning he ordered his staff to bug Mandela's visits and to either have full transcripts of all of his conversations or summaries of them in Afrikaans. Um, he left office in 1994, at, uh, you know, right when, when the National Party left power, and he took all his papers with him, thousands and thousands of I mean, he stole them. They belonged yeah. to the state. Yeah, I was going to say, some would say stole, not took them. <laughs> yeah. And they sat in his garage until his wife died in 2010, and it said in his will that his papers must go to the Archive for Contemporary Affairs at the University of the Free State. They took the papers. They didn't tell the National Archive or the Mandela family or the Mandela Foundation. They catalogued them, and they formally made them open. You could go and see them, mm-hmm. but nobody knew that they were there. Um and they started feeding them to select historians. So the reason I knew they existed is that two people had written books um, based based partially on them. But these neither of these authors went into the personal stuff. Uh, you know, there's lots and lots of stuff, uh, including, um, you know, bugged uh, Mandela negotiating with his enemy. You know, the secret mm, talks mm. are there too. And, and that's what the other books went into. Um, they just left the private stuff. And, and so that was all new, the... Very dramatic stuff, you know, Nelson Mandela's relationship with his daughter Zinzi breaking down um, in front of the bugs, you know, an astonishing marriage being conducted mm. and recorded, all the manipulations and cruelties. I mean, you you see this marriage in action and you see you see it breaking down and hollowing out in action. In real time almost. Yeah. I mean, it must be extraordinary to read the – I mean, I know I'm going to ask you to speculate. Do you think Kutsia did it – no, do you think he did it for kind of apartheid spy reasons, or do you think he kind of maybe knew that this was going to be something important for history? Yeah, I think the latter, and I think that he thought that he had an important place in history, and and oh. and, and that what he did should be preserved. I mean, the irony is that I don't think that the 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 public side of the the public work Mandela did that was being recorded, his secret talks with Kutsia and with others. I don't think that they change our sense of what happened around the transition to democracy. I think that they embellish it. Mm. And what they really embellish and really shed light on is Mandela's sense of his role. But I don't think they 
alter our sense of what happened. For me, the most interesting material is, is what happens with his family because, and, and I think it's really quite profound because one gets a very new sense of who he was. And, and two things about that new sense. One is that my conception of Nelson Mandela before I began this project was that he was political down to his last drop of blood and that everything else came second. Mm. And through these tapes and, uh, and, and other sources, you find out kind of the inverse that, that the older he got, the more time he spent in prison, the more he understood himself as an ordinary man who was the head of a family and, and that family was broken. Um, and he wanted to put it together again and didn't know how. He was quite a forlorn figure, quite a deeply sad, tragic figure. Um, and, and what happens in these transcripts is you see that you see his personal life falling to pieces. You, you see what it means to have been in prison and mm. separated you from your life for so long that you are no longer competent at living it. You, you cannot relate to the human, the most important human beings in your life or strangers to you. You love them, but it's really an only idea of them that you love because you don't know who they are anymore. And you're trying to conduct a relationship with them and you can't. You just don't have the tools. And it's, it's incredibly sad to watch that. And the other thing that starts happening is he's starting to become a very, very powerful man and power is new to him. He's, you know, he needs to learn what it is and what it isn't on the hoof by trial and error. And, and his first instinct is to use that power to mend his relationship with his family. Um, and so he comes out of prison and he does some pretty uncomfortable stuff to, to try and heal things with Winnie. Um, you know, so for instance, she's on trial for kidnapping and, and the night before her trial begins, uh, witnesses and co-defendants disappear and are spirited across the border. Um, international donors are suddenly, uh, he uses a very, very heavy hand to, to get them to secretly fund Winnie's trial. He's, He's starting to do some quite bad stuff. And, and I tell that story, but with the deepest possible sympathy, mm. because here is a man walking out of prison after 27 years, trying to reconstruct a life, which ultimately is ruined. Uh, and it's the only life that he has. It's a very tragic mm. story. And it's just desperately looking at what he can do. What tools does he have? And he thinks to himself, I'm very powerful. I can use that. Um, and within two years, he understands that he can't. Um, and it's a very, very personally sad moment in his life. You know, he tells people close to him that his, the story of his life is a tragedy. Um, and yet his, the story of his political life is mm. an extraordinary success. And we don't perceive him as a tragic figure at yeah. all. We, we perceive him solely as a hero. Yeah. And he didn't put out the tragedy. He didn't show the world. Mm. He was incredibly skilled at wearing a mask. Your earlier books took very much a sort of bottom up view of history telling the stories of the poorest, most marginalized people in society. And when I became aware of this book, I thought that you had kind of flipped your approach and this was now a top-down um, view of history. But on reading the book, I realized that you weren't taking the view of the Mandelas as leaders and politicians, but them as as humans, as people, vulnerable people. And in that way, I could see again it was a sort of bottom-up view, taking the personal over the political. In, in a way, uh, but what, what attracted me to them is, is that they, they were people who exercised power, and I was interested in writing an intimate story about people like that. And, and even more attractive for me as a writer is that they self-consciously made their marriage a myth. They, they put it on the global stage. They, they used it as a political vehicle. And yet it was a double life because it also was a private relationship between two human beings. And I was very keen to explore the, uh, the dialectic between those two things, between the marriage as a, as a public myth and the marriage as a, as a, as a relationship between two people and, and how those two things affected each other. And they did. So, so the fact that they were powerful and famous, you know, is right at the heart of the story. Um, I'm interested in that because it's something we're seeing more and more as life becomes more publicly lived through social media. Mm. There are more and more marriages that have a public persona and you always do wonder what that private persona of the marriage mm. is like. Um, so it's quite a current thing that, that they did quite early in the day. Exactly. I mean, they, I mean, one of the theses of the book is that when they met in 1957, and I can't prove this, I can only try and, convince people through the writing 
when they met in 1957, they intuited something that nobody in South Africa had ever thought, which is that celebrity is a political tool. Um, that the image of two very stylish, beautiful black yes. people um, as celebrities had political substance. So, so I think, I mean, why people get attracted to each other is, is complicated and unknowable. And they were very attracted to each other. It was, it was an electric courtship and the early years of the marriage were, were electric. But I think part of what they found so attractive about one another was what they looked like together and, and the possibilities that presented. They were both massively ambitious people. They, they both believed that they were born to leave. Who knew that they actually were Parshan Beck's in disguise? Who <laughs> knew this about the Mandela's? <laughs> um, Nelson Mandela has become much beloved by white liberals and Winnie Mandela is much beloved by black radicals. Um, do you think that that is a helpful lens to see them through? Because, you know, you paint the picture of Mandela um, sort of trying to puppet master a, a situation of reconciliation in South Africa while his wife was trying to foment revolution back at home. Um, so so is that sort of duality between them an, a helpful way to look at them? You know, I think that we, we need to accept that, that people who are famous through time are going to mean different things in different zeitgeists. And I think it's inevitable that young black South Africans will be disappointed in Mandela now. I, I think that's an unstoppable force. You know, whether that lasts forever, who knows? Who knows what, you know, what structures of feeling are going to be like in 20, 40 years and whether young people will come to love him again. Um, and the same with Winnie. I mean, you know, Winnie was a, a master at understanding the world around her and a master at telling stories that placed herself in that world around her. Mm. And, and she kept being brilliant at it until the very end. So she told an, a, a very, very powerful story to young South Africans in the last years of her life. Um, and it was so attuned to, to what you've just been alluding to, Gail, which is, you know, what goes along with constructing yourself on, on social media is the primacy of emotion, the primacy of what you're feeling. Um, and that is Winnie to a T. So Winnie retells the story of her marriage in her last years. And she says, Nelson Mandela was, not just locked up in jail, but, but locked up from black experience that he no longer knew what it was like to be a black South African. Whereas she was the embodiment of the pain and suffering of black South Africans that the apartheid state meted out the brutality on her. Mm. She, she knew. And because she knew she would never have compromised if she'd been in charge in the early nineties, she would have fought on. And that is exactly what many young people want to hear. Mm. It, it resonates. Um, you know, I've met so many young people, well, young, you know, up to the age of 45, 50. Um, yes, who, anyone under 50 is very young. <laughs> just putting that out there as who, a last, last gasp of you, youth. Yeah. You know, who, who not only won't hear a bad word about her, but who really love her. And, mm -hmm. and that's, it's, it's a fascinating phenomenon. I want to take a step back to process. Sorry, but it's been kind of in my head as you're talking. You're talking a lot about your research. Um, and I, I'm a writer of fiction. I did enormous research yesterday. I googled extraordinarily flamboyant names. That was my research yesterday. You obviously do real research. How, how does how does one even start? How do you you get an idea to do a book like this? What is the first step? Well, it, it depends on the book. I mean, each book kind of tells you what research it requires. And and this is a new departure for me. I've always found a person, decided the book's going to be about that person, and clung to them for a year. <laughs> Um, and then that's been so important, not just to interview them, but to be with them when stuff happens in their life. Cause that's when, that's when the interesting things happen. Um, rather than in an interview mm -hmm. here, the people are dead and you can't talk to them. And they're also the sorts of people who don't tell you very much anyway. You know, they're just Nelson and Winnie were both masters at being opaque. And so what you're looking for is what they've left in the world and what they've left in the world that's revealing. And you start looking at everything. So. I was very excited to read Nelson Mandela's letters to Winnie from prison because the letters can be treacherous things. They can be um, as opaque as anything, mm. but not when a person is a long-term prisoner and he's trying to live his life through his letters. And, and Nelson was trying to reseduce Winnie through his letters, you know, remind her of, of the fact that they were in love. Mm. And, and so they're massively self-revealing documents. So that was a good beginning. Mm. There was energy. Um I mean, another really 
sort of really rich and fruitful thing that happened early on is I went to Bizana, um, where, you know, the district where, where Winnie grew up mm. and started speaking to her extended family. Um, well, firstly, her younger sisters. Um, but then to cousins who were really the repositories of the family history and discovered early on that she completely, uh, fictionalized her past, um, quite radically. And, and I immediately got it why mm. she was doing that. She was doing that to protect herself. She was famous. She wanted her privacy and she protected her privacy by making stuff up. Um, but discovering the, her true childhood history was a revelation because while I was doing that, I was also feeding this material to a, a, a psychoanalyst who, who I ended up talking okay. to for dozens and dozens of hours. And so had, he was also an incredibly wise and interesting person. And so I was gathering this material about a family and about a personal history and, and feeding it to somebody who, who had a wonderful analytical presence and, and just helped me interpret the material. Um, so those were two things early in the research that were very, very exciting because they seemed to reveal both of the protagonists' depths, mm. um, and, and to get off on a good footing, you know, on, on when you, to think that you're really learning something new and exciting at the beginning is, is really important. You talk in the book about becoming aware of the tide turning against Mandela, um, in the sort of early 2000s, maybe of young black people um, turning against him, of seeing him as somebody who betrayed certain revolutionary ideals. I'm interested to know, because for some of that time, you were physically living in Oxford. Mm. How were you so acutely aware of something that I was certainly aware of in South Africa? And I thought it was because I'm in South Africa, I'm becoming aware of that tide turning. How do you keep your finger on the pulse of sentiments in South Africa when you aren't physically here. So, I mean, this is a weird thing to say and, and maybe it, it may well be wrong. It's a, it's a, it's a tentative thing to say, but, but I, I think that I think better about South Africa living there than, than I would living with me in particular is who I am living here. Mm-hmm. Um, because I find that when I'm living here, I tend to get caught up in the same conversations with the same people and, and stop thinking be, just because I'm, I feel like I'm going round and round. And, and it's not about here. It's about me and about the kind of life I inevitably live here. Mm-hmm. When, when I'm away, I, I absolutely do miss out on a lot of the granular stuff. You can't help but do that. But I, you know, I write a, a fortnightly column in South Africa and so kind of vocationally professionally i need to keep informed all the time and i'm i'm always spending you know between reading the newspapers and reading essays and talking to people um you know i'm involved in in south africa a few hours every day mm-hmm. um so i i do lose touch with things by being away but but not in a radical way i mean i'm not completely cut adrift um and and uh, i've been a, aware and following the decline of mandela's reputation among Young people, I think from the moment that Zeke Sindar wrote his obituary of Mandela in 2013 and mm-hmm. kind of announced to the world that his reputation was on the decline. Um, and that was just fascinating to me. And I began researching that. So by the time I started this book, that was something that it was very much in my mind and that I'd thought about and researched. You're obviously a person who is very aware of current affairs, aware of current feelings, aware of the stories underneath what's going on. Does it happen to you in the UK as well? Do you find your your mind reaching out for stories there? Like, could we see a Charles and Camilla once they're dead? Um, you know. So I, I think that when you're not born in a country and haven't grown up in it, you you never really get to grips with it. Um, so I've now lived in the UK for 11 and a half years. And I think that for the first five or six years, I couldn't interpret anything that I saw, really. <laughs> I mean, it was just too foreign. It wasn't in my blood. I think I'm a lot better now. Um, I've got, I'm much more, um, interested in, 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 in UK politics than I have mm. been before. And I really am. It's become quite compulsive. I, I want to know what's going on. I'm interested. And that leads to a deeper interest in, in the world that politics comes from. Um, so I'm much better than I was 11 years ago. Um, but I, I could never write a book about that place because, you know, this, this place, South Africa is, is where I feel confidence putting pen to paper I, I feel that I know that, I mean no is the wrong word I could just have a 
you know, enough years of, of granular day to day quotidian experience to, to feel some confidence. And I'm feeling, I'm feeling that now I'm writing a book set in the late 19th century. And it's a world I just don't know nearly as well as any world I've written about. And it, and it makes it hard. Winnie Mandela has become a locus of a lot of misogyny and misogynoir. Um, do you think that that was constructed by the white right in South Africa or was it constructed by the ANC itself? I'm going and, to interrupt. Mm. Explain to us all what mis- misogynoir is. Okay, so it's, it's a particular kind of hatred of black women. Okay. Um, and, and can come at black women from all different sides. Um, do you think that, why do you think she attracted so much hatred and so much, um, bile from various sides? It's such a complicated question and, and there's so many different roots of misogyny. But yes, I think the fact that she was a, a black middle-aged woman and a mother, Mm. So yes, I think there's deep racism in that misogyny. But there is also a, a black misogyny that she is the victim of. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting. It's, it's the idea of a woman who is independent, you know, a woman who does not have a man. Um, and I, often it's a figure of a woman with no children, although in her case, that's not so. And, it was very, very dangerous for her to be, to be seen as a woman like that. Um, you know, a woman like that is targeted and feared. Um, and, and it's a long pedigree of that. It, it goes back and she was deeply aware of that. And in a very difficult position because she was separated from her husband for much of her adult life and she had many lovers. She was the sort of person, she was boundaryless. She couldn't be alone. She had to have a lover. Um, and, and each relationship was consuming and all important. And yet, by its nature, utterly dangerous. So, so in Black South Africa as well, she she was unacceptable, and and she had to walk this very delicate tightrope. And the amazing thing about her is that she had no sense of self-preservation and kept wandering into danger, and you know came to the brink of self-destruction quite often. Uh, and and one of the things I found in researching this book was you know written documents by by senior ANC people saying we have to bring her down, mm. and yet she went on because. She just had this unbelievable energy. I mean, the very same energy that led her to the brink of self-destruction was the same energy that, that, that had her survive again and again. You speak of her with such empathy and such sympathy. It, did, did, did your view of her change during the writing much? Did you have one view when you started or did you, did you start with this feeling of empathy for her? I, I started with a genuine sense that I didn't know yet who she was and I was going to find out. What I did know from the start is that I didn't want to collapse the whole meaning of her into what happened in Sueso in the late 1980s, that I knew that it had to be, that that wasn't, couldn't possibly be the yes. sum of her. And that is what a lot of people, certainly white South Africans, that has come to be symbolic of her in a way. Well, in a way for everybody, no matter what your stance, people are, are stuck on her in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. So if you demonize her, it's because of what she, and she did terrible things in the late eighties. And I, I, I don't try and hide of any of that in the book at all. Mm. But if you're on her side, then most people on her side believe that she didn't do any of that stuff in the late eighties and there's a conspiracy. And for me, that's as sad because it's, it's, it's reinventing history. It's, it's saying, you know, facts can be undone and, and the fantasy put in its place. And that's very dangerous. I remember when they split up, there was this narrative in the media that, uh, thank goodness he was finally cutting her loose and he could now be the man that he was meant to be without her. And when he then married Grasa Michelle, the narrative was that, oh, he's finally with the sort of angel woman that he should be with and has cut the demon loose. I don't know. Does the media just get attracted to archetypes like that? Well, I think that I mean, a, a classic problem with the South African media is that it reflects a tiny segment of South African society. And so while the media is saying that, and it, that represents a lot of white opinion and quite a lot of black middle class opinion, mm-hmm. but then there's a whole vista of other people out there and they're seeing something else. Mm. And, and what, what have you, a lot of young Winnie fans are seeing is that these, this now separated couple are both going into old age 
And Mandela is going to, into old age as a 1950s bourgeois gentleman with a nice wife <laughs> and a nuclear family, <gasps> whereas the country is going somewhere else. Then the country marriage is breaking down. You know, very few people have the relationship that Mandela has with Grash and Michelle. People are more like Winnie. Life is more messy. They don't have a permanent partner. I think that a lot of people saw their lives in hers and not in his. Do you think he tried to reinvent what he had with Winnie at the beginning, another highly public marriage with a sense of a glamorous couple? You know, what you spoke about before, that they had that sense of what their marriage was in the public eye. Do you think he was trying to do it again? You know, I, I don't know as much about that yes. marriage as, as the former one, but from what I do know, uh, she didn't want to marry. I mean, they were companions, I think. I, I, I don't think that there was deep passion. Um, I think that they both understood the relationship as an autumnal one, even though she was much younger than him. You know, the great, great love of her life was Samora mm. Michelle, um, and she'd lost him in terrible circumstances. She'd lived a hell of, they'd both lived very, very brutal, difficult mm. lives, and, and I, I think that that was maybe part of their connection. And I think that from what, you know, I didn't speak to Grassa, I spoke to people who were very close to the family. So it's secondhand. But I think she always understood that, that the, the great love of Nelson's life was Winnie. Uh, and she, in fact, brought them together again. When, mm. you know, when they were married, Nelson was not on speaking terms with Winnie. And it was Grassa who said, you, mm. you can't do that. She's the mother of your children. Mm. You've got to rebuild your family and she's part of it. Your writing seems to come from a very inductive place. You go wherever the research takes you, and you have a kind of radical skepticism towards the material and, and don't accept things as read. And this book, um, I would imagine, led you into places that are uncomfortable for some of your readers. Have you got pushback from people who loved the idea of either Nelson or Winnie or them as a couple and have seen things in your book that have made them uncomfortable and that they are rejecting or trying to to say that you're wrong about? I've had a, I've had a few people say that they experienced discomfort with the intimacy of the book and, and nobody put that in an aggressive way. But I guess that's mainly because I've been speaking to – the book is new and I've been speaking to sympathetic audiences. But I can imagine from – sympathetic people saying that they felt uncomfortable and I got too close that there are other people who are going to be angry about that. They, they just haven't gotten to the book yet. It's, it's, um, it's just come out. So I, I, yeah, I'd imagine that some people will definitely take offense. Do you keep your finger on the pulse of social media? I know you have a limited presence, but do you sort of lurk on Twitter and see what's being said and see what's being discussed? No, I mean, the only time I, I know what's going on about what people are saying about this book on social media is when, when people um, tag me onto a, a post. Uh, otherwise, that's, otherwise, I don't know. Probably we, very healthy. <laughs> yeah, probably. We're coming to the end of our time, so I have to ask you a question. I always feel compelled to ask nonfiction writers. In my head, I believe everyone in the world really wants to write fiction. Do you have any drive in you to write fiction? Do you ever, when you deepen that research, think, God, it would be nice to just make up a story? I'm an enormous admirer of fiction. I mean, I think most of my favorite books, most of the books that I love most passionately are fiction. And I also kind of know that I can't do it. You know, I've tried many, many, I haven't tried for many years, but I did try long ago and just got face to face with the fact that um, it's it's not my greatest talent. I, I just find it very, very hard. And all sorts of fiction. I, I mean, I, I also wrote scripts for television. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an easier fiction because it's much more formulaic. There's a structure to write into, and I found that much harder than nonfiction. So I like to think that I'm wise enough to know what I can do and what I can't do, and that I found what I can do. Well, that leads us nicely into our last question that we like to ask all our guests, which is what narratives have you been reading or watching or listening to lately that have resonated with you in some way? I mean, it's quite weird, but two of the best books I've ever read were, were written in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And one is Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders. Right, yes. And, it, and it's, its genius comes from the fact that if you just say the idea, it sounds ridiculous. Mm, indeed. Um, you know, Lincoln goes to visit the grave of his, his newly dead son. And the story is narrated by the, the medley of literally hundreds of ghosts who live in that cemetery. I mean, 
who in earth would be who would be stupid enough to try and write a book like that? It's mm-hmm. it sounds silly. And and yet the fact that it works is is utterly ingenious. It's just extraordinary. It, it is funny and light and yet very deep and moving. I, I mean what he's pulled off there is just gobsmacking. Another book actually out this year, which which I think is one of the best books that I've read, is Old God's Time by Sebastian Barry. Oh, yes. um, I don't know that. That's so on my radar. It, it also, because it does something that you think shouldn't work, that it, it breaks too many rules. It's a very quiet book and a very intense book, and most of it takes place in one room at one time. It's a retired police detective um, living on the outskirts of Dublin, really doing nothing all day until he gets a call from the detective squad he used to work with to help with an old case. And a whole life opens up with with a degree of sensitivity and and depth, you know, that just gets to the bottom of him and his sadness in ways that's that are that are very unusual. I mean it's very unusual for a fiction book to reach so deep into somebody's psychology. But my admiration came from what he did with the structure of the book. It was a slow, quiet structure mm. in which really nothing ought to happen and, and yet suddenly everything is happening and and when it, when a writer can work that sort of magic i i'm just completely blown over you know you really are reading something i don't know sacred would be a pretentious thing to say but but something profoundly special i can't decide if that makes me want to read it more or less you've made it sound quite quite intimidating <laughs> not at all it's 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 wonderful you huh? Yeah, no, that, that's definitely jumping up my to-be-read list. Um, Johnny, thank you so much for your time. Um, we hope that everyone will buy uh, Winnie and Nelson, Portrait of a Marriage. And um, we look forward to the book set in the 19th century. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, thank you. That I haven't asked you more about that is an absolute miracle. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a real pleasure talking to both of you, so thank you. Thank you. Gail, it's not often that we are privileged to have a guest with such a rare intellectual ability in the studio. It was a privilege to listen to him. You know, Fiona, it was a privilege, but it was also a little bit intimidating for me. (laughs) I have to say, and I'm going to include you in this, I consider myself a fairly clever person. I'm not a complete fool, but I'm not a very, uh, I'm not an academically intellectual person. Despite having three or four degrees or whatever it might be. (laughs) I did them in a very unacademic way. Um, I'm very good at writing exams. Mm -hmm. I'm not very good at deep intellectual academic thinking. And there were moments there where with Johnny and with you, I felt really quite out of my depth and slightly stupid and it's it's an interesting feeling for me and certainly is a reflection of what an interesting chat we had it was interesting and the thing about his books is that they are so accessible and i think that is why they are so yes. loved and enjoyed because he takes this very rarefied intellectual material Mm. and he makes it accessible he makes it readable he brings the story really down to the ground Mm -hmm. like the story of Winnie and Nelson it's intimate it's simple it's going back to the emotions of two people in a marriage in very difficult circumstances and it's so readable and the reader certainly doesn't feel like the stupid person in the room Fiona, what is your writing advice for the week? And indeed, for the series, because this is our last episode in our first season. Okay, well, in terms of our season as podcasters, my advice has to do with what I have got out of this season, which is so much inspiration just from talking to other writers. So I would say to anybody listening who's got any aspiration to write, immerse yourself in the world of writing. Listen to the podcasts, follow the writers on social media, track down any interviews they've done. There's so much out there on YouTube. Mm. Just be in that space. Go to the literary festivals, listen to them. It will feed you, it will inspire you, and it will really fuel your writing as it has mine. I completely agree with you. And I actually want to talk about something around that, which is, you know, a lot of, a lot of our guests have, have spoken about this and, and a lot of people outside of the podcast that I speak to that when you ask someone what book you should read, if you're going to read one book on the craft of writing, everyone 
will stay, say Stephen King's on writing. That is and what writers will answer. Writers, yes. Every, by everyone, I mean, I mean writers. Um, well, you know, Stephen King's on writing is the book on the craft of writing. And when I tell new writers or writers who haven't heard of it, when I tell them that, they'll often say, oh, but I don't like Stephen King. Mm. And I think one of the things is you don't have to like a writer's writing mm. to learn from them, to learn from their process, to learn from their insights into writing. I think I, as it happens, I read Stephen King after I read on writing mm-hmm. because I thought he's so clever about writing. Let me now get into his writing. And some of his writing I love and some of his writing I find absolutely mad. Mm-hmm. But I don't have to love all of his writing to love what he has to teach me about writing. And I think over the season we've listened to different writers and different listeners are going to like their – as readers, they're going to like different writers in a different way. But as writers, we can learn from all of them. And I approached Stephen King from a different point of view. I had tried to read a few of his books and I found that they weren't for me. And then I think it was my husband was trying to push me into reading his book about horror, which is Dance Macabre. And he said to me, you don't have to like Stephen King to like this book. And I read it and I loved it. It was the most fascinating analysis of the genre. And then I became aware of his book, on writing, which has since become absolutely my Bible for all things to do with writing. So yeah, I'm somebody who his, his fiction doesn't speak to me, but oh, his nonfiction is just brilliant and I would recommend it to everybody. And with that, we end the first series of the Hidden Lives of Writers. It's been such fun, Fiona. It really, really has, and uh, we hope you get a lot out of it. We're looking forward to the second season. In the meantime, if anything about this episode has interested you or led to any questions, please get hold of us. You can email us. You can contact us on the Facebook discussion group. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Gail and I will respond to you. Please join the conversation. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.